This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. U.S. Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger says that his department is taking steps to address security issues related to the attack on January 6th of last year. The number of threats aimed at both Congress members and the Capitol itself has increased in the past few years, from under 4,000 threats in 2017 to now roughly 9,600. Manger says his department is looking to implement more than 100 recommendations from the agency's inspector general to improve security. The White House is resending its nomination for the head of NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to the Senate. The nomination for Lori Locasio to lead NIST first went to the Senate last July, but the Senate did not hold a vote uh, before the end of last year's session. The resubmission will be considered during Congress's new session. The White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP, is asking for input about the use of digital health technologies to transform community health, wellness and equity. This request for information goes out to community health stakeholders, technology developers and other interested parties. OSTP says it is particularly interested in getting more information about underserved communities. The office aims to use science and technology to achieve better quality health care access for all Americans. The Government Accountability Office just wrapped up its 100th year in existence. The federal government watchdog continues to transform management efforts, analyze federal spending, and support the country in times of crisis. Gene Dodaro is Comptroller General of the United States and leader of the GAO. Gene, welcome to the program. Uh, Good morning, Mimi. I'm pleased to be here. And congratulations on 100 years. Uh, GAO just wrapped up uh, the year of the 100th in 2021. Give us a quick overview of GAO's role and why was it created? Uh, GAO was created in 1921 following World War I. Congress had been concerned about the growing debt that had occurred during the war. And at that time, the federal government didn't have a regularized uh, budget process. The 1921 Act created not only GAO, but it created the Bureau of the Budget, which is now the Office of Management Budget, the president. It created a regular budget process. And then it created uh, GAO in the legislative branch in order to provide a check and balance on federal spending. And so our job at that time was to review uh, federal expenditures to make sure they were appropriate, consistent with congressional direction. Since then, we've changed uh, dramatically and have modernized over the years into a multidimensional, multidisciplinary agency that reviews all federal programs and activities for economy and efficiency and effectiveness. And our scope is the entire scope of the federal government's operations. Uh, And uh, we provide hundreds of reports each year about how to improve government performance and accountability. So the GAO's authorities come from Congress, but how do you ensure that federal agencies cooperate with your investigations to the fullest degree possible? Well, there are a couple ways here, Mimi. One is to make sure that the laws give us clear access and authority. And so we've worked with the Congress over the years to make sure the laws, for example, during the 
Great Recession and the um, global financial crisis, we didn't have enough authority at the Federal Reserve to do auditing there that we needed to do to fulfill our requirements under the Troubled Asset Relief Program. So Congress gave us additional authority there to review the Federal Reserve's emergency spending uh, programs. And so that's number one. But number two is relationships. Uh, I meet with the heads or deputies of each department and agency as they're confirmed and come into government. Uh, if there's turnover, I meet with the new officials. We go over our relationships with GAO, the importance of cooperation, what we expect of them, what they can expect from us. And it's important to have good trusted relationships. Uh, but we monitor this from time to time uh, overall, we have very good cooperation, but from time to time, there can be problems in sensitive areas. Well, I wanted to ask you when those problems occur, what if, what, you know, what happens if federal agency leaders simply don't agree with your recommendations and just choose to ignore it? Well, if, if they choose to ignore our recommendations, well, first I would say maybe over 75% of our rec recommendations get regularly implemented by the federal departments and agencies and by the Congress, because we make recommendations directly to the Congress as well. So by and large, we have good implementation. It saves billions of dollars every year and improves government uh, programs and activities. But when there is difficulty, I will reach out to the head of the agency. Every year I send every department agency and the federal government agency head a list of open GAO recommendations that they haven't yet implemented. I prioritize which ones I think it's important for them to focus on, and then our teams follow up with their people. Ultimately, if they do not do this, then we work with the Congress, and Congress will insert language and in appropriations or authorization bills. They'll hold hearings, they'll send letters, they'll communicate. So. Congress is our enforcement authority in this case, but the vast majority of our recommendations get implemented in a voluntary nature. GAO has a high risk list. Explain what that is. Well, in the late 1980s, there were a number of scandals that occurred in the government at HUD and the DOD and procurement areas. And Congress turned to us and said, you know, we'd like you to identify emerging risk and the highest risk across the government so we can focus on this in our oversight agenda. So in 1990, we started to create the list. It initially maybe focused on fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement. We had programs like the Medicare program that were on the list at that time. So we started out with 14 areas. Over time, we've developed it to also include areas in need of broad-based transformation. There are 36 areas on the list now. We update it with every new Congress, so every two years, the beginning of the Congress, to help set the congressional oversight agenda and to also to help uh, in the administrations in the development of their management agendas. By law, OMB uh, has to review anything we put on the high risk list and a portfolio review. And right now I'm conducting meetings with OMB and the agencies on the high risk list to talk about what they need to do to get off the list. Nobody really likes to be on it. And, and uh, our goal is to get people off too while maintaining our independence. But there, the areas on the list range from Medicare, Medicaid, many areas in the Department of Defense, 
weapon systems acquisition, DOD financial management, for example. Computer security is a high risk area that I added across government in 1997. We added critical infrastructure protection 2003. Unfortunately, it still remains on the list, as you know. Uh, and I still think the federal government needs to pick up the pace commensurate with the evolving threat. Most recently, Mimi, we added uh, drug abuse and federal efforts to uh, prevent and respond to drug misuse. You mean drug and misuse this, within agencies? No, this is drug misuse in the general public. I was concerned about the growing number of uh, deaths from overdoses. Uh, from fentanyl, opioids, and others. And, you know, from 2002 to 2019, over 800,000 Americans died from a drug overdose. This past year, the most annual numbers uh, were close to 100,000 people. It was the highest number ever in uh, history since we've been recording these oversight deaths. And, of course, the pandemic made the problem worse. Uh, but we think there needs to be greater federal leadership in this area, more coordination, not only among federal agencies that are involved, but the federal, state, local level with healthcare providers, with law enforcement. And so we need some national leadership to deal with this issue. All right, well, Gene, we're gonna pause right here and then we'll be back. Coming next, we continue speaking with the Comptroller General about the future of GAO's role in the federal government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. I'm talking to Gene Dodaro. He's Comptroller General of the United States and the leader of the GAO. Gene, let's talk about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. There were huge expenditures by federal agencies to address the crisis, and Congress asked GAO to oversee that pandemic spending. How has that been going? Uh, we've been uh, issuing regular reports. Mimi, what we were asked to do is to look at the impact of what's now, you know, 4.8 trillion dollars, what impact it was having on public health and the economy and giving aid to both uh, private sector organizations as well as many public sector organizations. And to track the funding, we were asked to give monthly briefings to the Congress beginning back after the March 2020 CARES Act was initially passed, which we've been doing. We were asked to issue bi-monthly reports uh, which we did throughout 20 into 21. Uh, we're now issuing them on a quarterly basis. Uh, we've made over 200 recommendations to the agencies to make mid-course corrections in those areas. We've issued eight government-wide reports uh, talking about the status across the whole uh, federal government's uh, response efforts in this area. And Gene, uh, what, what has been the most concerning, though, for you regarding what you found in your oversight of pandemic spending? Yeah, well, there's, there's two things, Mimi. One, on the, on the healthcare side, I thought we should have acted faster. And we made recommendations back in September 2020 to develop a vaccine communication and distribution plan. We did a fabulous job in the government developing the vaccines through Operation Warp Speed, and other efforts, and it was one of the highlights, I think, of the federal government's response. Uh, but we needed, based upon our early experience looking at H1N1 and other infectious disease efforts, we thought you need to get on top of this earlier. And so, unfortunately, we 
did not. And uh, there have been some improvements in that area and we're still doing it, but we're still trying to communicate uh, to people the importance of vaccination efforts. Also, I thought we needed a, a stronger national testing strategy. In January, 2021, we made a recommendation for that. We need better data. Uh, but we need that you, you can see some of the limitations we're having now in the testing area with the Omicron variant. So we're working with the administration now on the spending side, you know, in terms of the transparency and accountability. A lot of this effort, the Paycheck Protection Program, Economic uh, Injury Disaster Loan Program, the unemployment insurance area, the money was given out quick so that you know, was accomplishing the objective of speed, but there was trade-offs. There's much more fraud than anyone would have liked in those programs. You know, I wanted we to ask you about that in particular, the unemployment insurance system, because you did look at that, the possibility of fraud. What was happening with that? Yes, well, the uh, states were overwhelmed. Their systems, a lot of their information technology systems were uh, antiquated. They hadn't been updated. This was the first time we had unemployment uh, areas hit all, almost all sectors of the economy at the same time. Uh, there were new federal programs that were implemented that they had to stand up in addition to their normal uh, unemployment insurance programs. Uh, we work with the Department of Labor Inspector General and they focused a lot on the fraud areas. We also looked on and the other side of it too, Mimi, about were people getting timely payments that were legitimate payments. And there were problems there too with backlogs and processing cases. So you had problems both with fraud with people getting it that shouldn't have gotten it, as well as people who were due it that were delayed in getting their payments. So we're continuing to look at that program and we're, uh, and we'll have additional recommendations. I think we, we need to think about transforming our unemployment insurance program because of the changes we've had in the economy going forward. We need to modernize it. We're looking at that issue right now. And you had experience dealing with a crisis before with the global financial meltdown of 2008 and 9. Congress wanted uh, auditing of that financial rescue package. I wonder if that experience helped you respond better when the pandemic hit. Well, very much so, maybe. I mean, we we were primed to know how to do real-time reporting because in the Troubled Asset Relief Program, the $700 billion that was given to help unfreeze the credit markets and give capital infusions to financial institutions, we had to report every 60 days. We were required to be on site the day the legislation was passed. I remember talking to Secretary Paulson about you know, making a little room for us over there at the Treasury Department. And then uh, under the Reco American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, we had to do bi-monthly reviews of the use of the money by state and local government. So we uh, have learned how to adapt and not only do traditional auditing, but do real-time auditing, which adds a huge dimension to GAO's capabilities and helps Congress in national emergencies. Gene, you have been at GAO for close to 50 years. I take it you like it there? Uh, I'm settling in, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate your work there, and uh, good luck for the next 100 years. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Have a good day.
Up next, agencies can require companies to prioritize government contracts during national emergencies. Still ahead on Government Matters, we look at some of the challenges for using that authority. We'll be right back. Under the Defense Production Act, federal agencies can require companies to prioritize government contracts during a national emergency like the COVID-19 pandemic. But there have been some challenges in using that authority, according to a GAO report. Bill Russell is Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Account Accountability Office. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here, Mimi. So in the early part of the pandemic, there was a huge need for PPE, right? Personal protective equipment and ventilators. How was the Defense Production Act used during that time? If you think back to the beginning of the pandemic in March and April of 2020, quickly the existing medical supplies for PPE, ventilators, um, a, a lot of the, the commodities needed to respond to the pandemic were in short supply. The DPA was uh, an instrumental tool to help uh, acquire the available stock of those items. Think about the, the ventilators early in the pandemic, um, as well as N95 masks, other medical supplies that were needed to, to treat the patients. Then later in the pandemic, there was the issue of vaccine manufacturing. Was the Defense Production Act used for that? It was. It was a key tool that supported the development and the manufacturing of the vaccines. That included uh, the actual um, doses that we all heard about later in the pandemic, but as, as well as the supporting um, ancillary equipment that you need, things like syringes, right, and uh, the, the medical swabs and other things that you need uh, involved with vaccine development. So, Bill, how does the DPA um, actually work? Like, how does it allow agencies to provide incentives to private companies to expand their domestic production um, of, of these medical supplies that we're talking about for, for the pandemic, but also for them to reduce their foreign dependence on those supplies? Certainly, one key aspect of the DPA has to do with expanding domestic production of critical items. And certainly, we saw over the course of our work the DPA used in that way or similar authorities more than 60 times. And in many of those cases, it's a matter of uh, providing loans or other incentives to, for example, buy equipment to make more N95 masks to support, uh, let's say, creating another shift on the production line uh, or even standing up a new production facility. And so we've seen that a number of times over the course of our work in this area. but. N95 masks is a great example. The production went from a little bit more than 50 million a month to almost quadruple that after the investment um, devoted to companies through the DPA. So then what were the biggest challenges that you found that agencies faced when they were using the authorities of the DPA? Early on in the pandemic, the, the first challenge was to effectively move federal resources from one agency to another. For example, HHS had contracts in place for things like N95 masks, but they needed DOD support to help uh, put the DPA clauses on the contracts and, and do some of the uh, logistics involved with it. And so effective use of the Economy Act and other authorities was key. Uh, DOD 
implemented that lesson learned and created a, a playbook for how to do that more effectively uh, going forward. Another challenge had to do with HHS and FEMA, just we're not accustomed to using the DPA and all of its authorities. Uh, and since the beginning of the pandemic have devoted uh, more resources and staff and training uh, to effectively use the DPA going forward. All right, so GP GAO had made recommendations previously. What were those recommendations and what have the results been so far? Right, the first one had to do with just the transparency in federal procurement data of when the DPA was used and we made a recommendation that OMB provide additional guidance to agencies on how to flag when the DPA is used. Uh, and I'm happy to report that OMB has implemented that recommendation. The second had to do with HHS and sort of a forward looking rec to think about how they want to use the DPA uh, to address remaining medical supply challenges. And HHS is working on that, on implementing that recommendation. And there are new recommendations that you're making with this new report. What are those? This report really just captured the work that we had already completed, so we did not make any new recommendations. We do point out that with the American Recovery Act, there's another 10 billion in uh, DPA funding that can go to support further expansion of the medical supply base domestically. And so we will continue to track those funds as they're expended. And lastly, Bill, the DPA was enacted back in 1950 during the Korean War. Is this the first time it's been used for medical supplies? Certainly at the size and scale uh, to respond to the pandemic with multiple agencies leveraging their resources and the DPA authorities to, um, to acquire all of the medical supplies, vaccines, therapeutics that we've needed. Um, it, it's unprecedented the scale that's been used for this, this pandemic. All right, well, Bill, I appreciate you coming on the program and sharing your report with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, 
and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.